Hello and welcome to episode 16 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. I hope you've all had a great couple of weeks. We're still in a sort of, we're calling it lockdown number two here in the UK, but it doesn't feel anywhere near as severe as the last lockdown. But uh, yes, everybody's sort of trying to decide what's going to happen for Christmas. And uh, there's some rumours that we might be able to do whatever we want for five days within, well, whatever we want within reason. So sort of look forward to that. So my guest today is Jerry Hammock, who is the author of the Beatles Recording Reference Manuals. I would assume that most people are aware of these books. It's a five-part series where... Jerry notes down the technical details of things that happened in the uh, the, the Beatles recording sessions, um, things like uh, tape bounce downs and uh, loads of little technical details um, which are not available elsewhere. And we sort of discuss how he decided what information he was going to include throughout the podcast. He's just released episode five, episode five, it's not podcast, book number five, which uh, goes through Let It Be to Abbey Road. And it's the final book in the series. So he's completed his mission, which has been a, a long time in the making. It's a really interesting conversation. I've tried to cover a bit of sort of Beatles details, which obviously we're all interested in. But I'm particularly interested in how on earth he went about finding this stuff out. And what did he find out when he was doing it? We We all have... Uh, accepted truths about the Beatles and he had to look past all of that and just go for the facts that he could find out so I was really interested to see how he tackled all of those things and what he learnt during the process as has become the recent custom this is a two-part series um, which I'm really enjoying because it means I can have much lengthier conversations with the guests and I don't feel pressure to move topics quicker I can relax and have a bit more of a conversation um okay so without any further ado here he is jerry hammock and um, okay so i'm really pleased uh, to be joined by jerry hammock who is the author of the uh i have to, have to check the book's title now <laughs> the, the specific name of the book's titles how embarrassing i've only just got started so the beatles recording reference manuals which is a five-part book uh, series on uh, the specific background details of um, of the Beatles recording sessions, and you're about to embark on your final book release, book number five. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, for the holiday season coming up here, uh, I'll have volume five uh, ready to go, and I'm excited uh, to to have it out there. It'll the last of uh, the last of these, and and the end of a of a, a twelve year twelve year thirteen year odyssey. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to have it out there and have it in people's hands. And I know people are excited to, to learn about uh, Let It Be in Abbey Road. So happy to share that with them. Do you think um, that excitement has built more towards the end of the, the books? I, I, th- I, would ga- I would guess that people are particularly interested in the later side of recording, uh, but I might stand corrected. Well, it, it's, it's interesting. I... Uh, I, I believe, I mean, I'd have to like literally check the numbers, but I believe my best-selling volume has been volume one, which covered 61 through 64, covered my Bonnie through Beatles for Sale. 
And maybe it's because there's so much, you know, content there, like four, you know, four albums worth of content there that uh, people were interested. The recordings themselves were just so straightforward. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, certainly for, uh, for people that are, that are really into the recording history, uh, there's a lot more interesting, a lot more uh, meat on the bone when you get into the Pepper era and out through White Album and then, uh, and then Abbey Road. Uh, Let It Be was a bit of a backtrack, uh, but, uh, but actually not much. <laughs> Could you, uh, this might feel a bit of an exam question, but could you explain or just uh, tell us the, how the volumes are broken up? Uh, so volume one through to five. Yeah, volume one covers 1961 through 64. So that is the My Bonnie recordings with um, Tony Sheridan uh, out through Beatles for Sale. Volume two covered 65 and 66, so that picked up with uh, uh, Help and goes through uh, Revolver. <clears throat> Volume three uh, was Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour, so 67 in its entirety. Volume four was 1968 through early 69, so that covered the White Album uh, recordings and then the release of the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. The majority of the work, aside from Martin's soundtrack work on it, was done uh, was done prior to '69, but the release was in early '69, uh, actually about six months late compared to the movie. So, um, and now the final one will pick up 1969-70. We'll pick up with uh, Abbey Road and see you all the way through. Let it be. Fantastic. Um, as we uh, we had a little chat just before we started recording, and I was considering ways. Uh, directions of taking this conversation and one of the things I'd like to do I do have some specific questions that I'd like to ask you um, and I thought a good place to start might be just to I'm really interested in in how you went about doing this this whole project it feels like such a mammoth mammoth task um, by some of the interviews I watched that you'd done already they mentioned that you'd started it eight years ago, but it sounds like obviously that's been a, a while since then. So what, what has it been 12, 13 since the germination it's, of this idea? Yeah. I'm, uh, if I'm, re- if I'm recalling correctly, I got started on it about 2008. Wow. Um, so yeah, 12, yeah, 12 years or so. And where the, the true germination of this, happened in recording sessions where I would be uh, producing. And, uh, and this is back in Seattle where I used to live and I live in Toronto, Canada. Um, and I would inevitably in a session, you would hear, you know, someone would, the Beatles would be referenced. Um, you know, it's time to do the bass. This is, this is the one that always comes up. It's time to do the bass. Hey man, can you get me that McCartney bass sound? <laughs> what McCartney bass sound? Oh, you know the pepper bass sound. It's so cool. It's just it's just thick and and cool. How do they how do they do that? I, I want that. And you know, one way or another, these these references would come up. Can I get this? Can I get that related to the Beatles? And on a you know instance by instance basis, then you know, as a producer, you always say yes. Sure, McCartney bass sound, no problem. <laughs> you got it. And then I go track down as best I could. What what was that? And Oh, okay, Fender Basement Amplifier, uh, AKG's C12 large diaphragm condenser backed up with a STC4038, um, uh, sometimes with DI. Okay, I can put that together. 
and I get them the bass sound, and then they're ha- and and you know ultimately, of course, you you know this from doing recording. Um, uh, those components are good to know. What you're you know, but of course, I'm not going out and finding an eighteen thousand dollar AKG C12. <laughs> no. To do this, I'm just getting a large diaphragm microphone. I'm rolling off the you're rolling off some of the low end on it. Um, and, uh, uh, but, it, but you understand the kind of the combinations that come together to do that. So once you understand those things then you can give people what they want, that's where it started. And, uh, I had some time on my hands at one point, eight, eight year, 12 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun just to, to look into some more of this stuff, learn some more about this. And as I started down that road, I was like, I wonder, is, is, and I, I discovered there was nothing out there that did this. There was nothing out there that, while there was discrete resources that told parts of the Beatles' story in the studio, um, you know, everything from Lewison's recording sessions, um, Babbock's uh, Beatles gear book, um, uh, Ryan and Kihu's uh, recording the Beatles, you know, these all had these had pieces of it, different pieces of it, but no one had put together the the story of first take to remix. You know, how do these you know how do these songs start? How do they move? How do they work together? Or have the recording come together to end up with a track that I hear? And I was like, that's a huge gap in the Beatles' history. And I thought, oh, I can you know I can fill that gap. You know. I, I know enough that I can fill that that I can fill that gap and uh, do that research. I'm interested enough to do that research. Um, the research alone was eight years. Wow, eight or nine years of research before any book was released. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's a it's a can of worms once you start opening it up. I suppose it 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 really is. And uh, and to do this accurately, uh, everything has to line up. So uh, it isn't just that they were at EMI Studios, uh, Abbey Road nowadays. It isn't just that they're at EMI or Trident or Olympic or Regent. It isn't just that. It's that, in the case of EMI, that they were at EMI in 64 in Studio 3 with Norman Smith as the engineer and let's say Emmerich is the tape op. <laughs> it's because it, and, and Martin is a producer. Uh, from all, from all of that and, and why that is. And again, you know, anyone who's familiar with recording will understand. Um, engineers have their preferences. They record things in certain ways, ways that make sense to them, ways that they can, that they can just nail anytime that they have to. So, so the preferences of the engineers the equipment that was in that particular studio in that facility, all of that has to line up before you can start to really tell the full story of what, uh, of what went on. So I had to, on a you know, year-by-year basis, understand what was available in the studio, who was running that gear, what were their preferences, you know, how did they like to record, um, and then what musicians were there, what instruments did they have, what, you know, and all of those things had to line up to tell just the technical backstory, then telling the story of, but what actually got recorded. It was an overdub of this or, or that. That was, that 
came together through both an analysis of I've got over five thousand you know tracks of of Beatles audio um, that kind of gone and and have gone you know gone through forensically to to understand these things, um, and some of it we know that that this was um, you know for instance this was. Remix Mono 3 of Strawberry Fields Forever. And I know that this was done on X date from, uh, from John Barrett's tape logs and Lewison's work and uh, John C. Wynn's work. We know, what, know that this was done on X date. So now you can either move forward or backwards in time from those things and, and either additively or subtractively understand what the state of the recording was before that mix was made. <laughs> yeah. Or after that mix was made. And that helps you understand that if the state changes between here and here, what changed in it, that was the work that was done. And, it, you know, it's, it's a detective story. It's, it's, a, uh, uh, it's the ability to untie knots. <laughs> in a sense, you're, you're kind of uniquely qualified to do this. as a, Your experience as a, an engineer... Uh, presumably you were a, a huge Beatles fan to before this to, to sort of even consider undertaking uh, this task. Yeah. And you must have an extremely large amount of patience. So all of those qualities allow you to, to do that detective work and be so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like pernickety <laughs> about getting those details. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Thank you. I mean, that, that really, I really do think that is the, the combination of, of, uh, of skills that was required for this. And I, and I had the, I, you know, I had the time and the wherewithal to get it done as well. You know, I, 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 um, another part of my personality is I just cannot not finish something. (laughs) I can't, I can't half do a job. I have to, I have to really do the job. And once you, when you're doing nonfiction, one of the goals always of doing nonfiction work or historical work is you want that book that you're writing to be, the last word you you want it to be you want it to pass muster with people that know this stuff um and you want it to um in in my case and with the people that i admire in the in the uh in the beatles author community the um the idea is is you've got to add something new and you've got to add value and um and also, it again, it has to be able to um, pass the fact check phase, right? Yes. Yeah. So you know, mercifully, when I've been talking to people that were doing, you know, that had done the work, and in the, in, you know, talking to, to, you know, the likes of like Ken Scott and talking to uh, Richard Langham and Ken Townsend and, and these guys. You know, no one's going, oh, what, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> how'd you come up with that one? Um, so, you know, mercifully things are, you know, it's, it's, it's passing that check. Um, but I wanted this to be the last word. I didn't want anyone to ever have to write this, this book again. Um, and, and so that's why it took so long in the research to make sure everything lined up. And, uh, and then I needed to be able to tell the story in a way that was accessible. And so... Um, you know, hopefully I've, I've, I've achieved that and, and, you know, it's benefiting not only, you know, deep audio geek beetle people, but people that just want to throw in their headphones and hear something new. 
On on that note, it certainly does. I mean, you've put background into every you know uh, set of details that you've you've put into the book. There is background research uh, that you've written out as prose, which makes it uh, gives it a context which is really refreshing. As you said before, it's not just dry information that you've inputted. Uh, it's obviously it's called a reference manual, which makes it very easy. So you can dip in and out of it on a per song basis. Yep. However, it's nice to get a bit of context in in what you're listening to. I, I'm interested in how it felt. The Beatles is a very factually a very contested area, and you were embarking on this uh, sort of uh, the be all and end all of well, not be all and end all because presumably you'll you'll revise things and new new things will come to light potentially. Um, but in in as as best you can a definitive guides to the to these things how what was your sort of mindset and feeling towards getting involved in this even now it, the, the stuff that you've you've written and the people you've spoken to surely show it as being a definitive but then you still get people Beatles sort of nerds on forums and things all contesting different ideas and uh, people who supposedly sort of are well researched. I'm sort of choosing my words carefully. We we call it the Beatles police in my in the band I work with. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's a it's a pretty uh, dangerous place to to start looking into. I I think. <laughs> well, I you know I, I I frankly have I've never concerned myself with you know with, with the Beatles police. Um, uh, I'm you know I'm not trying to please them. I'm not trying to. Uh, if I was trying to please them, I would have been taking into account a lot of information that that just doesn't uh, doesn't pass the test uh, academically. Yeah, hearsay. And, yeah, it's here. It's hearsay. It's it's uh, it's accepted truth. Um, uh, I I don't pay much attention to those things. Um, you know, I heard from someone that this. It just isn't rigorous, you know. Oh, I heard that he did it this way. Well, yeah, but you know, if you look at the tape, you'll find out that, or you know, you listen to the tape, listen to the breakdown, you'll understand that it couldn't have happened that way. Um, so uh, I feel the way that I avoided that, the way that I avoided that was to, was to be as rigorous as I possibly could. Um, was to was to always check myself, and I'm always open to correction. I mean, in in each of the books, it says if you you know if there's something in here that you think is just boneheaded, you know, <laughs> get you know get in touch with me and let me know, uh, you know what what you know what you found. And I've you know I've I've made a a, a number of, uh, of of minor errors throughout the books that I've you know that have been corrected. Uh, on the on the website, if any of your listeners have early versions of the books, um, on the website there is a downloadable document that has where wherever I've made corrections in any of the volumes that they can download and they can insert in their volume, so they need to buy the book again. But nothing, you know, you know there's nothing glaring. There was a number of like copy paste things, or where um, what what's one. Um, the uh, the tremolo on Lennon's first 325 wasn't a Bigsby. It was the factory, you know, the factory <laughs> one that came with Rick Rickenbacker. I had that wrong for the Sheridan sessions. You know, a guy in Germany, you know, who knew about these things contacted me 
and you know corrected those kinds of things. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I I never I know it's contentious, but I never treated it that that way, and I and I don't treat people that confront me about the facts um, as my enemy, you know, because we're all trying to go for the truth. We're all trying to go for the most accurate information. And that's, um, that's what, that's been my goal all along. So, so, you know, that, uh, uh, I'm not perfect. I don't get everything, <laughs> don't get everything right. I don't get everything right the first time, but, you know, together, uh, with some people that have been, you know, that have, have been in touch and helped me understand, uh, some things that I, that I've either missed or haven't been quite as accurate as I could be. Uh, they've, you know, I've dialed them in. I've got, you know, I've got them as accurate as I can get them. Well, you're, you've made yourself a very approachable uh, person, which is nice. It's almost you've created a community uh, which is focused on finding the truth for this. And through your rigorous research, you can choose whether to accept or dispel um, certain things that people might might put to you. Did you have to change your uh so accepted truths is one of the, the phrases you said a minute ago. Did you have to sort of uh, get rid of those accepted truths that you had beforehand? And did it challenge you in any way? Yeah, I, you know, in a number of cases it has. One of, the, one of the biggest takeaways for me that I didn't fully appreciate was how much the band recorded together live. Like how many of the backing tracks through the entire you know, catalog were done as a group together in the studio, performing together. That was one. Uh, the other was, was the work ethic that the Beatles had uh, when it came to recording and making, making the music. Um, we're only exposed to this late in their career. We're only really exposed to this when we get to Let It Be and we have the, the, uh, the Nagra reels from the Twickenham, session, the Twickenham rehearsal sessions. Um, those rehearsal sessions were not the exception to the rule. They were the rule. So here you see the Beatles getting ready to work on an album and they're spending six or eight hours together on a daily basis and they're playing through some of these tracks like in Twickenham <laughs> instance, they're playing through, let's say, two of us and they're doing it 38 times, 45 times. Unbelievable. You know, and that's why when you hear the song, it sounds like it just flows out of them. It's, and they were doing that all along. It's just, we don't have, you know, no one records rehearsals. Um, if they, in the few instances that they did record their, their rehearsal takes of things, they would record over them with the proper takes and we only have evidence of those because they were what was left on the tape uh, when they had a, a keeper, when they had a good backing track. Uh, but that was those two things were very eye-opening for me. I, uh, as a, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the '60s. I started recording in the '70s, um, so into full, you know, 16, 24 track, multi-track. Um, in the '70s, everything was. Uh, a lot of the recording was done as built built up songs take by take by take by take or piece by piece not a lot of or the focus wasn't as much on a big group performance in a, in a number of situations and the perception was 
of not of a group performance. But um, so you have so I had that bias in my head that all this stuff was built piece by piece, especially <laughs> the later stuff. And you find, you know, when you find out that both because of the limitations of four and eight track and just the way that these guys worked, that they were doing a lot of this stuff together. The um, uh, when they were doing uh, overdubs or superimpositions, they were called in, in, in the era, uh, they would do them together. They would do all the percussion. So, you know, tambourine and maracas and hand claps, and they're all done together. You know, put down the tambourine, clap your hands for a couple <laughs> takes, pick up the tambourine again. Um, record the organ part along with the guitar solo. These were all, you know, they were done together. They were performing these things, you know, like a group performs, not like solo people and or like solo artists. And that was, you know, again, that went through the whole of their career. Uh, that was just the way that these guys worked. And that was surprising to me because... Uh, I think the the popular history of the Beatles makes uh, kind of gets your mind in a place where you want to compartmentalize these different eras. That oh, this is when they were a band in the Beatlemania era, <laughs> and this is yeah. when they were studio guys in the Pepper era, and this is when they were solo guys starting in the White Album era, right? And that's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. It's it's fascinating. It's, it's so much to unpick, even just from what you've said. I mean, on on the percussion, which obviously is something I'm really interested in. Um, as you you, I think you might have seen. I'm recreating recordings um, of uh, some of Ringo's playing, which is something I. Yeah, really your drums. Think. Your drum sounds dynamite too. Ah, really, so really, much. <laughs> really good. Oh, well that, uh, I appreciate that coming from you. <laughs> um. I, when I go to do the, the percussion uh, overdubs or superimpositions, which is a, a, a word that I have never actually said out loud before, I don't think, just in my <laughs> head. <laughs> um, I always notice it's John playing the tambourine. And for, I, I mean, it just seems to be overwhelmingly, maybe it's just the, ch the songs I've picked that it's John, but it means that the tambourine part throughout the song tends to start off fairly... Um, fairly sort of structured and then as the song goes on it tends to get a bit wayward because I, I gather his attention span is probably not the best <laughs> no not not the best at all but as a as a drummer it would usually be if i was doing an attended session in a studio um as opposed to sort of remote what i do uh, it would be on it would rest on my shoulders to do the percussion overdubs and it often isn't that way with the with the beatles well it, it almost is never that way it's always uh, John, Paul, or George doing the percussion overdubs, and Ringo doing the kit part, which uh, is a really interesting thing. Yeah, in a lot of cases, that that's what was going on. Certainly, it was it was typically all hands on deck. You know, if they were if they were available to do something, uh, they would just get it done. And uh, you know, so if in their with the example we've been talking about, if in their in their heads. The percussion additions to the drum kit, you know, the drum part on the basic track is I want bongos, I want a tambourine, I want some maracas. You know, they're not going to wait for Ringo to play all of those things. They didn't have the real estate for it either. You know, they didn't have the tracks for it. So, uh, so yeah, whoever can play it plays it. And uh, that was that was just the way they worked. They, um, one of the, uh, I think a misconception from people that don't that don't record 
and I don't mean this, I'm not trying to say it to be uh, grandiose or superior in <laughs> saying this. Um, a, a misperception is that we're going we're gonna to make this the coolest thing that we can make it. And whatever it takes to do it, that's what we're going to do. Typically, that's not the case. Typically, the case is I'm gonna get, I need to get the work done. You know, I need to get a drum part done. I need to get the bass part done. I need to get this done. And you do what it takes to get the work done, and then you move on to the next work. The Beatles are very much of that school because they were under such horrendous time restraints. There, were, there was always a single to deliver or always an album to deliver. And in their early years, that was teamed with, there's also concerts to do. There's television to do. There's radio to do. There's movies to do. So, you know, you don't languish over things in those situations. You get the work done. And, you know, was Lennon the best percussion player? <laughs> Probably not. But he was available. And it, adds, it adds character to the song. I, I love the raggedy percussion sounds that you hear on, on the records. They're often, when I'm picking them apart, they're often so off time. And I, I'm quite conscious about that when I record my sort of uh, impressions of it. Trying, do I do I play uh, how I th- how I hear it, or do I play it accurately? And um, I I try to do the accurate version as best I can because you know I, if I'm honest, I'm a trained musician, so it's very difficult for me to to play in that way. But there's a there's a certain uh, there's a certain sentimentality, if you like, of of the way that somebody plays a percussion instrument who isn't a percussionist, and I think that that adds real character to a lot of the uh, particularly later Beatles stuff that isn't just a shaking a tambourine throughout the whole song. Yeah, um, you know, the emotion in music is not found in perfection. The emotion in music is found in in the human elements. <clears throat> excuse me, and those human elements are, you know, often that it's just not quite spot on. It's just not quite, it's not quite there. Um, uh, as a producer, Martin, understanding that this was good enough, you know, this, this did the job that needed to be done. We can move on now. It's, it's, a, it's a critical aspect of being a producer. And Martin had it down. Um, I, there's an example I always bring up of, uh, the uh, guitar and bass parts for Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So the, uh, at, the, at the chorus, there's a, 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 um, a simultaneous part that's, that, that is that's being played by Harrison on a Leslie guitar and McCartney on bass. Harrison's guitar work is so ragged and so <laughs> ugly. It doesn't sound good. It's not, he doesn't hit all the notes. <clears throat> For whatever, you know, possible chemical reason there might have been behind that. Um, but, uh, but in context with the track, it's exactly right. It's just what the track needed. And Martin understood that. He doesn't have to hit it all. I just have to feel that, that that's the right thing. And, uh, and when it feels right, you know, again, in the studio, when it feels right, it's next, 
Yes. I think often, from my experience, that can be misconstrued as uh, being lazy, but in fact, it's being efficient, uh, as, as to sort of paraphrase what you're saying. And I think that a lot of artists, when they're creating their art, want perfection. And actually, like you've said, it's not perfection that gives, gives you the character, and it takes somebody to, to sort of challenge that um, in order to... to finish a project off uh, in, in a sense and I, and, um, and I think that that's quite a you sort of said what you've said in, in the context of people not who don't record often and I think it even happens with people who do record often that they that, that that's what a producers role in it role is in a sense yeah um, I was uh, I was producing a session um, <clears throat> with a vocalist and the song was just this really raw track and he comes in and, and, and does, the, does a pass on the vocal. And it was one of his first passes on the vocal. And I'm listening to it, and I'm like, that's it, man. That's, that's the, you know, that's, that's the feel. You're not, and so he's done with it. And he's like, okay, let's do that again. And I'm like, no, let's not do that again. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, well, he goes, I, what do you mean? He goes, I, you know, I, my intonation was off on this and da, da 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 And I said, yeah, but listen to it again. And, and listen to what you're saying too. And with what you're saying in the lyric and how you sung that, that's the take. And, you know, three months later, album's out. <laughs> and I get a call from the guy and he's like, thank you so much for not letting me sing that again. Because that was the take, um, and no, it wasn't perfect in any way. <laughs> it wasn't perfect, <laughs> um, but that's what was cool about it. Um, you know, that's that's what worked about it. So, um, I'm always listening for those in between spaces. I'm always listening for you know the um, a, a great lesson I learned from this blues guitarist, a friend of mine out of Chicago. He always told me he said because uh, uh, I you know I I, I play I play. Uh, multi-instruments and stuff. My favorite instrument is probably the bass. Bass or, or piano is probably my two, two favorites. But as a bass player, he said to me, um, the groove is always just before the beat or just after the beat. <laughs> he goes, that's, that's, he goes, he goes, that little slippery space. He goes, he goes, that's where the interest is. That's where the groove is. And that always stuck in my head was it's it's while it's cool you know to be able and for a lot of forms of, of especially popular music uh quantization being really locked on is is fundamental to their sound but for something human and organic and and that you're trying to connect to emotionally it's those slippery spaces it's those places before and after the groove that you really find the heart of the song and that's what i'm always listening for when i'm when i'm producing or making music they are beautiful stories that completely typify everything that we we've just been discussing and uh, i mean ringo had that slippery space and nailed <laughs> his uh, his snare drum always just behind and it's uh, it's so i'm i'm still trying to replicate it i still play along to beatles songs to try and fit in 
that that slippery space i can't think of a better description of that it's just, it is blooming slippery because it's hard to stay there <laughs> yeah yeah it, it it really is if you're if you're thinking too much about it um you you get lost and uh and when you're you know i'm sure you're used to as i'm used to just grew up with it working to working to a click track um you know you you tend to take a click track so literally when you're recording to it. Um, and again, the, like the best people that I've worked with, they hear the click track and it, and then it disappears in their head and they're, they've internalized it and that allows them to move in and out of the groove and, um, and yeah, and again, it, that sort of thing connects connects emotionally. And we're not talking we're not talking about losing time, but we're but but talking about um, how you how you address the time in a more I, I think I guess in a more traditional way. Think, you know, think about orchestras. Orchestras play with with um, tempo in in a way that's foreign to pop music. But in, in a lot of the classic pop music, there's a, you know, there's a movement of you know, a beat or two per minute or that is happening that's sort of imperceptible, but also just makes the songs happen. Um, actually, I had a guy contact me, uh, and he said, hey, did you notice that this boy, you know, that I think this boy's an edit. And I said, well, I mean, it is an edit. <laughs> and he said, well, and he thought it was an edit in this particular place. And his his justification for it was that it went from let's say eighty seven beats per minute to um, to ninety two beats per minute. <laughs> and so I was like, oh well, let's, well, okay, let's look at that. So I look at it, and I'm like, all right. You realize that this tempo change happens over thirty seconds. It's, it's meaningless. Yeah, it's, na- it's a natural progression. Yeah, it's a natural. It just it just happens. Yeah, it just happens. You know, you know. There's there's no organic musician that is so that that their part. You know, again in modern terms, we we're able to take uh, uh, take a performance uh, and and quantize it. We can we can lock it down to a uh, to a meter if we choose to. Um, but they didn't have that luxury. They couldn't quantize their their stuff. So it's just very natural that you're going to get, you know, again, that you might be a little bit slippery. And if you're doing this, you're recording this as part of a band, then the whole idea of working with other musicians is that communication. And we're looking at each other and we're cueing off of each other. And and through that communication, we we decide together what the timing of this track is when it's time to move to the next bit of it, when it's time to, to, uh, to dive into the chorus or that. And um, sometimes it's right on the beat, and sometimes <laughs> it's not quite right on the beat. So. <laughs> but that's why it feels the way it does and way, why it sounds the way it does. I, I, there's, there's beauty in, in that sound to my ears, and that's why the, I think that's why one of the sort of contributing factors to why the Beatles music has, has lasted so long. It's um it's refreshing for us to hear that. Um because like as you say, a lot of uh modern day music, even for young musicians growing up, they're listening to 
potentially smaller bands who've recorded at smaller studios, they're still going to be playing to clicks and, and having their tracks quantized and edited. And it's suddenly, it's a shock when you hear recordings from 60s and 70s when you are confronted with music that isn't doesn't feel like that and uh, it feels different and you can't quite put your finger on on what that difference is but i think that's one of the the main contributing factors as to why it's so so well respected and has had the longevity it's had yeah well you know it again it allows us that to me it allows us that human connection that's 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 the core of it um you know, I, I feel like, you know, my friends are making that music and not, you know, nowadays who knows who's making that music or what's <laughs> making that music, which, you know, I mean, doesn't matter that much. No, it <laughs> doesn't matter. That, you know, when push comes to shove, doesn't matter that much. Um, but uh, uh, if in your music making, you have taken the heart out of it in pursuit of perfection, then I don't know why you're making music. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I really don't uh, because uh, music is one of those art forms that at its heart, at its heart is, is purely about evoking emotion. So, uh, you know, unless you're trying just to club someone over the head with a beat in a dance, in, in a dance club environment, um, <laughs> Uh, that emotional connection is is yeah okay I have to correct myself there too I get <laughs> I get very exclusive sometimes um, you know even that even when you're connecting with someone in a dance club and you can get them to just to just move um, that's some that's something too you know the early Beatles under Pete Best if you if you listen to some uh, tracks that uh, uh, you know anything that he that he uh, worked on that the big beat of the Beatles that came from the fact that he was an okay drummer, but what they, but they were, um, they were kind of just driving home a four on the floor thing, like all the time under him. And it was impactful. You know, that was emotionally impactful to, to drive that kind of really heavy, you know, really heavy beat home. Um, so I, you know, but I guess more, you know, more to my point is that, um, you know, the emotion isn't found in perfection. The emotion is found in imperfection. It's it's found in the moments where that could be me when I'm listening to it, and I think that could be me. That's a really cool way to think about it. I um, I feel like I mean we've I I love this. I we've gone off on a huge tangent. I'm, I'm going to bring it <laughs> bring us back to uh, to Beatles. This. There's so much I want to speak to you about. Uh, if we, perhaps while we're on this subject, well, we, we can kind of steer very slightly towards what the your new book is going to be sort of focusing on. So it covers um, um, writing, thinking, sort of let it be recording and Abbey Road recording and, and sort of mixing and release. That's, that's the final piece of the puzzle, isn't it? That's correct. That's correct. So, so you mentioned the, the Twickenham rehearsals earlier and... and I was going to interject then, and I'm glad I didn't because it led us to a great, great place. The, the the Beatles, in a sense, broke the mold of this sort of three sessions a day, three hours per session that that had long gone by this stage, and they were now uh, able to fulfil their work ethic to its fullest potential, in in a sense, and spend a lot of time rehearsing and writing these, you know, lo- you know thirty nine, forty times as as you said, you know, these these tracks for these albums. Um, 
I wonder if you could clarify the chronology of, of these albums because it's something as a before I looked into it as a sort of a, a I would certainly not call myself an aficionado but as a you know somebody who's very interested in Beatles I'd always been a bit confused about the, exactly the order of how things were recorded and released and mixed and, and that kind of stuff and you're yeah, so perhaps you could just talk about that. So how Let It Be and Abbey Road, the recording and the release and the mixing of all of, of both of those albums? Well, you know, the, the germination of, uh, of Let It Be was that, uh, you know, they were, they were looking to do a television show. And the idea of the television show was that they would be filmed preparing for the television show and then they would do a live concert and that would be the show. Uh, so that's that's the germination of Let It Be, and why they're being filmed in a in Twickenham Film Studios and and uh, doing the re- doing the rehearsal work. Well, you know, quickly they went off of the you know the whole band was not signed on to we're going to do a live performance. You know, they hadn't played live for a number of years in front of an audience, weren't super comfortable with the idea. Um, the uh, they had they had become so used to these layered recordings where uh, you know through Pepper through the through the White Album you know starting with Revolver actually that they were doing you know any one song might contain nineteen or twenty different performances um, they were so used to that being you know the sound that they liked and had developed and the idea of uh, of being forced back into the the four piece or with Billy Preston the five piece band, um, you know the whole concept of get back, um, and the limitations that 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 imposed on them, they weren't all on board with it. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, they quickly lost interest in the project. You know, within a month they had lost interest in the project essentially because. The Twickenham rehearsals start in early January. Uh, by the end of January, they have done the rooftop concert, and they and then the follow up the next day. They did the Apple Studio sessions, um, and you know that one's put aside. And what are we going to do with it? Well, now it gets hung up even further in what are we going to do with this footage? What are we going to do with this audio? What are we going to you know what are we going to do with all this? And in the meantime, they don't have an album scheduled. You know, they don't have anything to go. So around April, I think it is, then, of 69. Um, so they're done. So keep in mind, they're done in January. They're finished with the Let It Be recordings. They start in early January. They're done at the end of January with them. And, the, and it's on to, you know, Glenn Johns to try to throw a mix together. Um, now they're on to uh, Abbey Road. Because now we've got we want to get something out this year that we that we control and it's not tied to a television show it's not tied to you know anything but what we're doing so they start in recording Abbey Road so this is February of '69 now uh, uh, yeah and I believe there well I believe yeah I'd have to you know look at the <laughs> look at the dates I don't have them right don't have them right in front of me don't have that text right in front of me but you know essentially Abbey Road's put to bed during, or I mean Let It Be's put to bed. They've been, and during Let It Be, they're rehearsing and, and, and working on songs that end up in Abbey Road. <laughs> and it was part of it. Um, 
but but again, the idea is we have you know we want to get something out there. So they yeah. start working on working on what becomes the Abbey Road project. Did they start recording the Abbey Road project at Trident Studios? Yeah, I think the very first track of I'm you know <laughs> this is what happens when you're editing and doing all this stuff. It's kind of <laughs> lose start to lose the thread of it myself. Um, uh, I want you. She's so heavy. Yes, uh, was started at was started at Trident. Uh, and uh, and then they moved they moved over to uh, moved over to Apple with it. They worked at Olympic Trident and uh, and EMI Studios d- during the course of the Abbey Road recordings, um, whatever was kind of available to them at the time. Or, um, uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's where they start. That's where they started the work. And uh, uh, the the album progressed pretty efficiently overall. Um, they had been talking about, again, it, at the Let It Be sessions, they were already talking about what became the side two uh, collage, the, 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 uh, the long one, mm-hmm. uh, so-called. Long one or huge melody yes. was, what they, was what they called it uh, internally. And they had already been talking about that. They, they, there's, there's discussion on, uh, on the Nagar reels of McCartney and Harrison and Lennon talking about, you know, we've got these bits and, and what do we do with them? And, and McCartney talks about, well, you know, the bits are great. It's how we put them together. It's how we bring them together. That's, that, that, that's going to make the difference. So they were, you know, this, it seems like they were already conceptualizing what would come together as that side to, you know, mega medley. Um, and, uh, uh, and then a number of the tracks, uh, uh, were recorded, you know, recorded in tandem. Ones that we think, you know, we see the album listing and they're individual songs, but they were recorded in, you know, recorded in pairs in, in, uh, in a number of occasions uh, for that. So the intention all along was that those songs would fit would fit together somehow. That's very cool. I I, I hadn't realized that they'd had been they were having discussions about that through then, and and it did. I mean, it did get come together very quickly because it came uh, there's a, a little a pun there I, I can't help myself pointing it out that's terrible I'm, i might edit that out <laughs> um, <laughs> just the fact that i've pointed it out <laughs> um it was obviously was released just september so you know six months maybe after they started doing it and that's that's unthinkable in in this day and age and pres- presumably throughout this whole process the let it be album was still swimming about with Glyn Johns and then eventually Phil Spector and and it was all tied into that TV performance and uh, the TV idea and it was all just being discussed with management and among themselves. Yeah, and eventually of course it became a movie, right? Uh you know, it became a uh, a really dark film. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. but uh uh yeah, that's that's you know, it's on it's on the back burner certainly. You know, they don't know what to do with it. It's so much material. Uh, it was, uh, um, there just wasn't a lot of intentionality about what was going on with Let It Be. And, uh, you know, when, when I talk about 69, I, I say the Beatles got back twice. They did, you know, they, they got back to where they once belonged twice. The first one, certainly with Let It Be, the idea that they were doing these kind of fairly straightforward rock and rollers, um, going back to their back catalog, um, trying to gain that spirit again, 
that was one, you know, one form of it. They certainly didn't stay true to it. They, you know, and, and <clears throat> despite, you know, revisionism that says, you know, McCartney didn't, you know, like the, the specter stuff and that happened then in, in 1970 with the tracks, with the, the orchestrations, uh, to me, that's patently false. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, McCartney would not allow the release of a track that he didn't like. Now, you know, if the critics come back and go, those are some really syrupy strings there, Paul. <laughs> then he's like, yeah, well, Spectre, I never really wanted him to do the thing, you know, because, you know, no one likes to be criticized. But believe me, those albums did not go out. Let It Be did not go out without the approval of the Beatles. That was the album they wanted you to hear. So like it or not, <laughs> that is, you know, the Let It Be, the Spectre mixes of Let It Be are what the Beatles wanted us to hear. Well, they they rejected two previous Glyn John versions, didn't they? Yeah, and, you know, exactly. They, so they weren't adverse to rejecting albums. They they had to have approved it. There, there you go. The, yeah, enough said of that. That's that's exactly the point. Um, so you know that was the album they want they wanted us to hear. Um, but you know the idea behind it uh, with some of the uh, you know two of us and one after nine oh nine and. Uh, and some of you know some of those tracks, yeah, they were really you know it was cool and straightforward and raw and unfinished in a really cool way. <clears throat> so that was one way of getting back. You know, that was one way of of reliving the the glory days of the Cavern Club and Hamburg and all of that stuff for them. But then they got back again with Abbey Road. They got back to what they did better than anybody else, which was, which was. Um, which was make a very intricate, very connected, very finished recording. Um, it was another thing that they did better than anybody else, and they'd been doing it better than anybody else since Revolver. Um, and uh, uh, you know that was that was equally home soil for the Beatles. You know this this idea of 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 um, making something that was just sonically wonderful to listen to. Um, and finished to a degree that, you know, other artists dream they could finish a recording. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't think the Beatles, I I think the Beatles knew how good they were on one hand, but I think a lot of it was also just very natural to them in working together. It was just what came out the back end when those guys got in the studio together. Um, either they pushed each other to those, you know, to, to those levels and those performances, um, or it was just the way things, things worked when those guys got together. And there's been a handful of bands over history that, that that's the way it works with them. You know, you, you put in, I've, I've heard it said, I think as a, a Martin quote that if you get one of the Beatles in the studio, it's, it's cool. You get two of them, you know, it's great. You get three of them, you know, you get three of them, it's fantastic. And you get four of them and it's magic. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's a handful of bands like that, but you know, the, the Beatles, um, through their work ethic, through their, their internal competitiveness, um, they just were able to deliver. It's alchemy, you know, whatever the dynamic between them is, is a, is musical alchemy <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I've completely lost my train of thought because I was just so engrossed in, in, in what you were saying. <laughs> um, 
Oh yes, I remember. So when they moved into to to doing Abbey Road, obviously EMI uh, Abbey Road uh, Studio had then upgraded to the uh, TG one two three four five desk. From your research, do you think that had much of an impact on the sound of? Obviously, it had an impact on the sound of that album, but of the approach that they took with that album, obviously ignoring some aspects of it which were done at other studios. I I have to say yes or no, yes and no to that. Um, the the bigger impact was the change to everything going on to eight track. You know that they that they knew eight track was the destination, and that had been the case since the mid middle middle point of the white album. Uh, one of the misnomers on the White Album is that that's like their first eight-track <laughs> album, but over half of that album was done on four-track. And, uh, you know, it was only the back half of the album, and less, and I think less than half of the tracks ended up being finished on eight-track. So um, I think the biggest difference when you get to, uh, to Let It Be, or not Let It Be, but to Abbey Road, is, is more that everything's being done on eight-track now. They and had to uh, have that. They they requested Ken Scott to to pull it through. You know, EMI had it, didn't they? And they for some reason just wasn't in operation. <clears throat> yeah, um, all of the gear that got into uh, um, got into Abbey Road had to pass muster with the technical team, with Ken Townsend's team. Um, it had to be able to be durable enough to last through the studio. It had to. Uh, um, be set up to be able to handle ADT and seems <clears throat> very speed and all these kinds of things. So uh, that was the case in the White Album is they had the 3M machines there, but they weren't ready to go into service yet. So they pulled it in for while my guitar gently weeps. It kind of hijacked one that was almost <laughs> ready to go and started working with it. Um, by the end of the White Album sessions, they were you know the machines were ready and they were they were in play. Um, but, but again, the, the big, the big difference in terms of their work approach was that they were working on eight track so they could work a lot faster. They, they didn't, uh, need to do these tape to tape, four track to four track tape reductions. They were able to do internal bounce downs where I've almost filled up the eight track and now I can, I can do a little sub mix of a few elements of it and open up and open up some real estate, um, to, to do more work. So it's just a lot more efficient working process when you're not having to do having to to move between a couple of machines. They still did tape to tape mm-hmm. on eight track, but just wasn't as it wasn't as as required. Um, overall, their working process didn't change very much. Okay, uh, they were still doing group backing tracks. They were still doing group overdubs. So. Um, uh, so fundamentally, they were just making an album like they always made albums when it came to when it came to Abbey Road. Uh, the the big big difference uh, in fidelity in the fidelity of the album was the fact that now the TG one two three four five board was solid state. It allowed them to do equalization and dynamics control, compression and limiting on every channel on every input channel. So that's a huge change. Uh- at this point, this sort of links to one of the uh, questions I wanted to ask you. So, in the um, so that the book I happen to have next to me is the the Pepper Zero uh, book, and it talks about a um, this is not specific, but it says plug in EQ box, which they were using as sort of an outboard. 
plug in EQ to the red desk. Now, uh, do you, do you know what that EQ was? Yeah, well, they had well they had a number of plug in EQ boxes. Um, typically, what what those what those boxes were like the presence box, the RS one twenty seven. What those boxes did was they compensated for what was not built into the board. So the RS-127, I think, has e- has four distinct EQ bands that it hits. And I used to have them memorized. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, but at any rate, it has, four, it has four EQ points, like 3.5 kilohertz, 5 kilohertz, 8 kilohertz, 10 kilohertz. Why it had those was, was that the, the red consoles, the red uh, 51 and the red, the red 37 consoles lacked those eq points so those that that piece of gear then made by plugging in that eq now i have i have control over those pieces of the spectrum so that's how those that's how those were used and it was the same thing when when they started using the uh the rs56 um uh equalization unit uh the the curve bender which was which was uh, uh, initially employed in the mastering process because it gave control over um, over four uh, a lot of control over four distinct e- uh, uh, EQ bands. Uh, typically, that was used in mastering, but the Beatles were able to employ it on their recording. And uh, 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 again, all the reason for this was. That that they would that they would use it was to gain more control and allow them then to differentiate their their instruments and their performances uh, more finely, uh, and that was necessary because the the red consoles themselves only had uh, what you could think of as bass and treble control. Yeah, uh, they had bass, treble, and presence control. Presence <laughs> pr- the presence frequencies are. Uh, somewhere between uh, 4K and and uh, 8K, and so you could dial up the what they call the presence on a signal, and then you basically had bass and treble control. So think of that with the home stereo. If you had bass, mid-range, treble, and that's all you could dial in to differentiate sound. Well, by accessing these external pieces of gear, the RS-127 presence box. And the RS fifty six curve bender it allowed them for more fine control over the EQ curves of any signal that they were recording. So these would have had a sound that the Beatles were used to hearing. Um, and for those of you who are listening who who aren't uh, aren't re- into recording, valves have a very specific sound. And suddenly moving to transistors is a. I know that they they will have worked in other studios, but it will have marked a huge change sonically for them they would have been sat in front of the speakers and the desk and and heard a different a different quality of sound not saying it would have been better or worse there's debate about about that but it certainly would have been different and sort of by my reckoning it certainly would have influenced some of the decisions they'd made whether they were conscious of it or not perhaps Oh no! It certainly it certainly did. It it certainly influences the the decisions you make. You're hearing different things in in the in the music, um, as you mentioned with with uh, valve based consoles. Um, there is uh, due to the technology, 
there is this kind of natural uh, harmonic uh, distortion that gets added to things. There's a natural compression that gets added to added to signals. But uh, additionally, with the with the uh, with the red consoles, and the and the setup at EMI, and in fact studios of that era, they had such little outboard gear. Like any typical Beatles session would only have maybe one or two one or two mono compressors and one or two um, uh, mono limiters. Um, that would be their that would and, and and then the external EQs that we had, we've just mentioned the RS fifty six and the RS one twenty seven. So that's a really limited toolkit to do to do your work. And now when I'm recording, because I'm re recording to four track and I'm recording a group of performances with the early Beatles recordings, there could be an entire band's backing track, guitars, drums, bass, uh, all on one track of audio. So what happens in those cases then with this outboard that helps you control and shape the sound is you're averaging out, you're making your choice around just the fact that I only get one compressor for all of this now <laughs> on its way on its way to tape. So I have to kind of figure out my volume balance, my tonal balance, as well as how aggressive I want to attack it with with compression all through one device. And now when I move into the the era of the TG12345 console, now every single channel I've got, I can sculpt the EQ. I can sculpt the signal that's going through it. Uh, Ringo didn't only have one channel of drums anymore. He had he had seven input channels of drums that could be very tailored. They might have ended. They only ended up with typically one channel on the tape, but on the way in, before I sum it down to that one channel, I've got control over you know seven microphones that I can tailor any way I want. I can make that kick drum really boomy. I can make the tom toms deep. I can make the overheads really crispy. Um, you couldn't do that before. It was, it, I had at most I had this uh, a summing box that was the RS one forty four a four channel uh, input that I could get additional inputs into it, um, and I could do a volume balancing between microphones, but that was it. Then I was back to one EQ and one compressor. <laughs> so and all that makes a huge difference. It's a huge change. It's a it's a massive step up. It's um. I mean, it's not progressed a huge amount more than than that up until the modern age. That's what channel strips have now, and and uh, yeah, that will have been. I mean, obviously, <laughs> they, they will. Uh, they have a lot more uh, complicated stuff on them. In, you know, presumably there weren't buses and all that kind of stuff on this this desk. But uh, you, it's it will have been a huge step up. It might have looked, you know, must have been like a just represented the modern. Yes, there was space travel in 67 and all this kind of stuff. They must have thought they were looking at the future of, of recording. Well, they really, well, they really were. It was, a, it was a truly modern console. And, uh, and in the spirit of console of handmade consoles that were, uh, being put together for, uh, Trident, you know, the A range consoles for Trident and, uh, the Helios consoles that were going into Olympic, um, you know, very much in, very much in that spirit, uh, it was a truly modern console. Now, you know, the, the red boards did have, of course, you know, input channel, they had master channels, they had echo sends 
and that kind of thing. So they were close, you know, they, you know, they had some, they had some modern facility. Um, it just, just very limited, you know, just very limited. And now, uh, with, with the TG consoles, you know, again, you've got the first inkling of a, of a completely contained, you know, self-contained modern recording console that they're able to work through. So there we go. Always uh, feel really mean <laughs> cutting the conversation out halfway. But I hope you enjoyed that and I hope you look forward to the next one because it's just as interesting as that conversation. I do urge you to go to Amazon or Jerry's website. I th- it just links to Amazon anyway. So it's uh, a medium that Jerry is happy with you buying through. So go to Amazon and type in the Beatles recording reference manuals and you'll see volume five. They are just incredible incredible books so i uh, i mean i've got mine on the way and i definitely urge you to do the same um, and support people like jerry who are putting an amazing amount of effort into archiving a lot of this material it's amazing so i'll link to all this stuff in the notes for the podcast as well so whatever app or however you're listening to this if you're feeling a bit lazy you can just scroll down and click some links below and it will take you to all the places i've just told you so that just leads me to uh, remind you that you can get in contact with me. Uh, it's joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. And I, or, or you could do it also through my website, allyouneedisdrums.com. On my website, there are lots and lots of free Beatles stems. I think I've done 21 tracks so far this year. I'm doing one every week. So you can go to my website and download uh, the, the sort of recorded version of those drums. So you can play around with that. There's also transcriptions that you can buy of those drum parts, and I'm adding to them all the time because I'm gradually working through the whole of the Beatles studio catalogue um, and beyond. So, yep, yeah, do that, and uh, feel free to get in touch with me with any feedback or guest suggestions or anything you like. Um, I'd also like to say a great big thank you to my good friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music he put together for this for me. And another good friend of mine, David Henshaw, for the incredible artwork that he supplies me with every two weeks. So I will see you in a fortnight for the second episode uh, of The Conversation with Jerry Hammock. And I hope you all have a special fortnight. All right. Goodbye.